0: We could only fly all four together when they were young, with the written permission of Her Majesty. Nowadays, for instance, the King can't fly with the Prince of Wales. I thought
1: that was always a myth.
0: No, far from it.
2: Was she wearing Wellington boots, or were they like hiking boots? Or? No,
0: they're two wearing uh, walking, shoes. walking shoes.
2: Walking shoes. Never thought about that before. Yeah. That's so interesting. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I'm never going to look at the picture the same way. <laughs> <laughs> never. <laughs>
0: A half an hour before we were due to take off, two things happened. One, they said, you've got to go via Wittering to pick up her sisters. And then a few minutes later, I got a call from the household to say, we may be bringing the body back.
1: Hi everyone, and welcome back to another episode of A Bright Royal Podcast with me, Andrea. And me, Emmy. In episode two, we're making the most of the last of summer and chatting about all things royal holidays, as well as taking a deep dive into the one place that we all know the royal family adore – Balmoral. And of course, we'll be joined by some distinguished guests who can tell us all about it.
2: First up, we're talking to squadron leader Graham Laurie, a personal pilot for the then Prince Charles, who completed over 2,000 flights with the royal family. Oh, I hope he's enjoying his air miles (laughs) or (laughs) retirement. We'll also be hearing again from Julian Calder, who has the best anecdotes about Balmoral.
1: But first, we welcome the wonderful Emily Nash to the studio. Hello, good (laughs) to be back. Tell us all about your summer. It's been pretty
3: uneventful, which is lovely. I've managed to take my foot off the gas for uh, quite a big chunk of time and just enjoyed a bit of royal downtime for once. You know, the last few years have been pretty busy. And of course, last year, I think we were possibly starting to understand that things might be changing uh, fairly soon. So yeah, it's been a good chance to reset, I think is a fashionable word now.
2: <laughs> well, presumably you've been keeping your eye on the royals during your break though, Emily. So how have they been spending their summer holidays? Well, they have followed in the late Queen's
3: tradition of gathering up at Balmoral in Scotland, which was one of her favourite homes. And I think it's lovely to see that they have continued to come together in a way that they have done for decades, you know. And it's a real opportunity for them to spend time together and relax away from the spotlight. They have this, you know, fantastic secluded property out in the wilds of the Scottish Highlands. And I think it's always pretty magical for them.
2: So who's been up
3: there? Well, the king and the queen have been in Scotland over the summer. They've been staying both at Hall, which is their private residence on the Balmoral estate, and at Balmoral Castle itself. And the king obviously is on holiday, but he's still taking his red boxes. He still has to welcome visiting prime ministers, other distinguished overseas guests. So it's not a complete break for him ever. But they have been able to welcome other relatives there.
1: Difficult summer as well. I think that the first big event, family event, always after someone's death is very bittersweet.
3: Absolutely. It will have been really poignant for them. You know, you can imagine them gathering in the bodies or wherever that they go for their picnics and just feeling the late Queen's absence. You know, even in recent years, she was still being driven out to meet the rest of the family on outdoor gatherings. And I think that will have been very much in their minds. But it's lovely that they are continuing.
1: So talking about Balmoral, what does their day to day look like? What activities do they do?
3: Well, from accounts we've had from various prime ministers who've visited the late Queen up at Balmoral, It's quite a busy diary of being up and out and going on long walks, going on picnics. The late Queen famously would do the washing up after picnics. The late Duke of Edinburgh, of course, was the king of the barbecue. We've heard lots of accounts about how he cooked a grouse better than anyone else. And it is a chance for them to do what normal families do, away from the public gaze and let their hair down, but also be in this idyllic spot. I think Princess Eugenie once described it as a kind of paradise and one of her favourite places on earth. And you can see why it would be so attractive to them, you know. They can be there, they can be together, they can run free as much as the royal family ever can. I think it's interesting that the king has chosen to sort of stay up there and out of the spotlight around the anniversary of the late queen's death because that's something that she, of course, used to do every year at Sandringham. Yeah which is where her late father passed away as well. So there's, again, this tradition, this continuation that the rules are so good at.
2: So we know what the senior royals get up to, but I mean, is it a place for the kids as well? Like Louis and George and Charlotte, are there some fun things for them to do in Balmoral? Yeah, very much so.
3: I think, you know, they have the run of the place. It looks, I mean, who wouldn't want to run around a huge castle in the Scottish Highlands? You also have the fishing. You've seen pictures over the years of William and Harry as young boys out fishing with their father. I think... It's something the Princess of Wales will be all over. You know how much she loves outdoor oh, yeah. time for the kids, being in the fresh air. I'm sure everyone's sleeping really well at night.
2: Well, I don't know about you two, but I wish that I was holidaying at Balmoral now. Sounds absolutely... Oh, 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 cool. not, I'm not be, offended me at sh- all, Emmy. Absolutely <laughs> amazing. <laughs> could be podcasting, or we could be fishing in the Scottish Highlands. I think you'd look Clay shooting. Yeah. <laughs> but shall we move on to our next guest? Absolutely. Yes. I'm so excited to welcome our next guest. Graham Laurie is a former Royal pilot who flew King Charles III around the world while he was the Prince of Wales, along with plenty of other members of the Royal family.
1: Welcome to our podcast, Graham. What an honour to have the former pilot of King Charles with us today.
0: Thank you very much. It's nice to be here.
1: (laughs) Now, you flew the then Prince Charles more than 700 times and you completed nearly 2,300 flights with the royal family. That's right. I was was very
0: lucky. Back to 1981 and I uh, got a phone call. Could I go for interview to the Queen's Flight for a possible job, a personal pilot to the Prince of Wales? At the time, I was the examiner of the Andover aircraft, which is what they flew in those days. And I went along and, uh, of course, I examined some of the, the captains and co-pilots on the Queen's flight. But when I got there, there were six other people as well. Anyway, I was the lucky one who got the job. I think it was a case of better the devil they know than they want to yeah.
1: <laughs> Was that something that you dreamt of?
0: No, not really. I, I mean, I'd been in the Air Force for 12 years, for 14 years, in fact before I got this uh, job, and uh, i have always been a transport pilot. I'd been stationed in UK, I'd been stationed in Sharjah in the Middle East, and in Brunei in the Far East. So I'd actually quietly got myself worldwide experience, which was one of the things they wanted. Incredible. I
2: was going to say, what do you think set you apart from the other six candidates?
0: I don't really know, and I'm not being clever, but I think it really was they knew me. And it made a big difference, I think. And in fact, I was due to start the day the prince and princess went on their honeymoon. The guy I was taking over from was due to retire from the Royal Air Force the previous day. And I must admit, I wasn't that happy of suddenly coming in and taking over with that particular flight going. So the captain of the Queen's flight got on to the Ministry of Defence and he got the guy extended for two days (laughs) so that he could fly them out on their honeymoon and fly back. And then they didn't fly back with the Queen's flight. They came back on a VC-10, I think. But my first royal flight with the prince was after he got back from his honeymoon, which I thought was a rather nice way of, of changing over.
1: How was your first day? Do you remember it?
0: I'd been briefed that you don't ask questions, you answer them. A bit like today, (laughs) really. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You can ask
3: away, Graham. uh,
0: No, I knew I was going to do the trip and I'd been briefed what the prince was like and he came up front. Introduced himself, and I called him Your Royal Highness. He called me Graham, and we continued to do that until I retired. You know, it was lovely. And he was so easy to work with. Very good pilot, very keen. He stopped flying back in 1994. A lot of people thought that was because of the incident at Islay when we went off the runway that I got the ticking off for. But it wasn't. I'd already knew he was going to stop. It was because the workload he had, not just going on various engagements, but of course he had to see all the papers that Her Majesty saw. Because then, as you saw, it was almost a seamless Transition, yeah. which is exactly what it should have been. Mm. So he found that he couldn't spend as much time up front. He was had to dash down the back to do some work and so forth. And on a few trips, he didn't do the takeoff. He just came up and did the landing. And it was getting more and more difficult to get him to do training. And consequently, he made the decision. It was one that I, I must admit... I was sorry he made it, but I could quite understand why he made that decision.
2: I'm going to have to circle back to the going off the runway (laughs) anecdote, which I didn't know about. So (laughs) what happened there?
0: Well, we were flying from Aberdeen to Islay in the Western Isles of Scotland, and he did the landing, and the non-operating pilot, which was me in that case in the right-hand seat, pushed the control column forward as soon as we were on the ground. And unfortunately, we were going a little bit faster than I realised and it lifted the main wheels off the ground. Now, we are sitting right over the nose wheel. He pressed the brakes and he said, they're not working. Oh, God, that's not what you want to hear. I said, I have control and took it over. And he was absolutely right, they weren't working because the main wheels were not on the ground. They were just, what had happened, they they were literally about a few inches above the ground. And then when they did come down, the brakes were already on Mm. and consequently the tyre burst. And that cuts down your effective braking. And consequently, we went about four metres off the runway, just the nose wheel. Mm. But unfortunately, if it had been Aberdeen... We would have probably just oh we're a bit on the grass tax it off and back to dispersal. Unfortunately, I now know there's a peat bog at the end of oh. the Ilo runway, <laughs> and all that happened was the nose wheel dug in and folded back. So we did quite a bit of damage. Of course, the press all said, "Oh, it was his fault. I was the captain, but he was flying." It wasn't because I had told him to land, and uh, so I got the rap, and uh, that was it.
2: What, what level of alarm do you <laughs> yeah. feel as you're going into the bog at the end of the runway with the Prince, the each King of England?
0: I was keen to stop, you know, <laughs> to put it mildly, and tried to turn it off, but we were going, uh, we went off the runway probably doing only about, 10 miles an hour, something like that. It wasn't uh, careering off the runway. It was one of those things, not my proudest moment. I was uh, very sorry it happened, and it certainly wasn't his fault. But it happened on a Thursday. On the Sunday morning, I got a telephone call from the police post at Highgrove to say the prince would like to speak to you at 8.30. So are you going to be in? Well, obviously the answer was yes. He rang up, and his first words were, how are you? And I said, oh, I'm I'm okay, thank you, Your Highness. And he said, how about your wife and your children with all the press coverage? Mm. So, you know, that was his immediate thought. And uh, as I say, I knew that he was going to stop flying and he decided not to announce it until the day that they announced the results of the Board of Inquiry in the Commons. Right. So consequently, the next day... All the publicity was about him giving up flying, not about me getting the rap from, oh, from the MOD.
1: That's very good. So,
0: you know, that's a measure of the man as far as I'm concerned.
1: Yeah. Now, you've been on many, many flights, like we said before. How are the royals once those doors close and they're inside?
0: They're at home. Quite simply, it's the only time they can relax. There's no press around, no photographers around. And uh, they do relax, kick the shoes off and put slippers on and things like that. But the lovely thing is they know the people who they're flying with. So he always saw the same people. And I spoke to him after I'd retired, and he said, ''The problem is now we never see the same people.'' He said, ''They don't know what I want, what I do, how it works.'' And I think that's continued because the RAF do so little royal flying now because of the costs. The RAF have put up the cost of their aircraft that the uh, royal household are now using a lot of civilian charter aircraft, little executive jets and so forth. So
2: no nervous flyers in the royal family? As oh, <laughs> there is.
3: The no. the current queen is oh, a Camilla. really nervous flyer. Well, I,
0: I, of course, can't answer that because mm. I never flew her. But we did have... One or two of them were a little bit nervous, but never really that much, not outwardly. We just knew from their household. As far as we're concerned, we left the back end to the two stewards, and they would go down, talk to them, and give them drinks and so forth, sort of settle them as best they could. And it it generally worked very well. And we tried wherever possible. We had three sort of buzzwords about Royal Flying. Safety was number one. Comfort was number two, and timing was three. And an on-time arrival for us was plus or minus five seconds.
3: Wow. Wow. People
0: used to say to me, don't you get bored flying up to Aberdeen all the time? Well, not when you've got to do the timing. (laughs) Plus or minus five (laughs) seconds you don't. But uh, it was interesting. Uh, Most of them were quite keen to fly. We would occasionally invite them up onto the flight deck and on on the audio. Normally when we were overseas because it was different and sometimes we're landing on rough strips and so forth. I remember one we invited the Princess Royal up onto the jump seat and uh, she was sitting there and we were coming in on finals to an airfield in the Sudan and just as we got to about a mile finals I could see a Land Rover coming in from the right hand side and it drove onto the runway in front of us. So we overshot and uh, we came round and landed and I found out what had happened And the next day, the princess says, did you sort out that? And I said, yes, it was the little girl who was going to present you with a bouquet and they were running a bit late. (laughs) 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 So she ended up running a bit late (laughs) in order to receive the the flowers.
1: You spoke before about comfort. and I know before... The aircraft used to be completely transformed. There were offices for the private secretaries. You had fax machines. Obviously now it's different.
0: It was like a home. The lovely thing was that we got all our food from British Airways at Heathrow there. Certainly it doesn't apply now, but it did in all my time. But in the Andover, the best description, it was like cooking in a caravan. There was a small hot plate. It looked a bit like a kettle but it was a hot jug that you could heat water up in, you could make coffee in and so forth. But when we got the 146, we had a full airline galley so we could take food from Frozen and at top of climb it was ready to serve, just as you would in a normal airliner. Passenger was nearly always the Princess Royal because one of her patronships is Save the Children Mm -hmm. Fund. We had to uh, provide food for her. So we never left Benson without what I call the bottom line in catering. Those <laughs> wonderful flat tinned meat pies by Frey Bentos. <laughs> and we'd do that. We'd take tinned vegetables, tinned potatoes. The stewards would tart up a gravy and <laughs> add a few spices to it. And we'd serve steak and kidney pie or chicken and leek pie. And do you know they used to love it? I think it was <laughs> such a pleasant change from all the poncy first cups. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you He's
3: saying Princess Anne is a fan of Frey Bentos. <laughs> well,
0: she was. she enjoyed it. I mean, she may have had it at home as well, I don't know. But, <laughs> but certainly uh, it was unusual to serve it in the aircraft. But uh, nevertheless, it was always very much enjoyed.
1: Now, we're talking about royal holidays. Did you ever fly the royal family to any incredible holidays that we may not know about?
0: Not that you may not know about because... Uh, Arthur Edwards and his team um, <laughs> uh, were, were normally in position. And uh, the ones I did mainly were the ones when the Waleses went on holiday. And that was normally to the Mediterranean. But interestingly, we flew all four, the prince, the princess, Prince William and Prince Harry, up until Prince William was 12 years old. After that, he had to have a, a separate aircraft. And we could only fly all four together when they were young with the written permission of Her Majesty. Because basically, nowadays, for instance, the king can't fly with the Prince of Wales. And in the old days, the Prince of Wales... I
1: thought that was always a myth.
0: No, far from it. And so what we did in the end, when William became 12, he would fly normally in a 125 from Northolt. We would fly... The 146 or the Andover out with the other three on, but that was very much the way it goes. And uh, you well, were
3: 12 old enough to go on his up own up until
0: then, they true. probably thought it would be too much for him,
1: yeah, yeah, traveling
0: all. on his own. But nevertheless, that's what they did. The number of times that they, a whole family, travel together is actually quite rare, yeah, because true. the uh, children don't normally go on a lot of the uh things. It's only really holiday times and perhaps short journeys from Balmoral to Cathy Church, that sort of thing. But basically, the longer journeys, they don't necessarily fly together.
1: Do you think that would happen now with I
0: know that the king is trying to cut down costs and is aware of travel. But I think the safety side is still paramount. I mean, even to the extent it has changed. For instance, our aircraft were painted red, white and blue, that well-known colour scheme with the Union flag on the uh, tail. But they changed it in 2002 and changed the colour scheme to look more like a normal airliner. We had red, white and blue for flight safety reasons. But by 2002, security took over. So it was really to make the aircraft not stand out as much. They have the anti-missile equipment fitted and so forth that we did in both the Andover and the 146. But of course, when they charter a civilian aircraft, it doesn't necessarily have that. So you pays your money and you take your choice. The more expensive aircraft might have it, but they're trying to keep the cost down when I was flying in the mid 80s it was probably at its largest because the Duke and Duchess the Gloucester Duke and Duchess of Kent, Princess Alexander, Princess Margaret, the Queen Mother were all doing lots of engagements. I mean we flew over 1200 royal flights in one year wow. in 1985 back in 1953 when Her Majesty came to the throne. We only did 60, that huge jump, but because the royal family was bigger. Now it's smaller.
1: You spoke about, you know, summer holidays in the Mediterranean. How in advance would you know about those trips?
0: Most of the royal tours we got to know well in advance. Some of the big tours to India and Africa and so forth, we might have been working on it for 10 months or so.
1: So you've clearly flown with so many of the royals. If you could pick a favourite.
0: I think every time I do a talk about Royal Flying, someone asks that. And the answer I give is, no, I don't. I have to say that because I flew so much with the Prince and the Princess of Wales, then yes, I obviously like them. But they were all absolutely super to fly with. They really were. I flew so much with the Prince, and uh, therefore, yeah, obviously he was top of my list. But no. Uh, And the lovely thing was, I flew sort of all the Royal Family. Princess Alice back in 1981 to 82. I flew her a couple of times. You know, it was lovely from one extreme. I did the first flight for Prince William and Prince Harry. How was that? We used to invite Prince William up to the flight deck. And uh, one day I said to him, would you like to put the undercarriage down? So we let him. But of course, when he had a A younger sibling, we couldn't couldn't have two of them on the (laughs) flight. (laughs) Um, So we had to explain to mum that uh, now I'm afraid we can't do that anymore, and she was in full agreement. (laughs) Of course, talking of the princess, I had the job of flying her back from Paris after the uh, fatal accident.
1: Oh, really? How did you get the news? Your job really didn't stop just piloting. You always had to be watching the news.
0: Yes, my wife always used to say to me, why do you want to look the news? Well, the answer was that if someone important died, there was a chance that one of the royal family would go and represent Britain at the funeral.
1: So tell us more about that day, about Princess Diana.
0: From a thousand bouquets outside the palace gates, the scent of a late summer confirming the end of a life cut short. So it was with the reluctance,
4: a struggle and a sense of helplessness that yesterday's truth dawned. In
1: the future. That must have been the saddest day oh, of your career. Very
0: much so. I mean, I suppose if you say the highlights, the ones I remember most, that one and my last flight, probably. But that one, I found out at about two o'clock in the morning. My son was home from university and he'd been out to a party, and came in and had heard about the accident. So he woke me up. I dashed downstairs and rang Strike Command and said, look, there be changes for tomorrow. I was due to fly the Prince and Prince William from Aberdeen back down to Lynham because William was going back to school a couple of days later. And so I said, there will be a crew at Northolt when it opens at 8 o'clock, so don't bother ringing anybody. My crew will be there. And uh, I got up at about 6, found out that she'd died, were rushed into Northolt and probably spent about three-quarters of an hour on the phone. The household rang. The crews were ringing. By eight o'clock, we had two crews because guys had rung in and said, do you need me? And so it was really good, a real good team effort from a 32 Squadron. A half an hour before we were due to take off, two things happened. One, they said, you've got to go via Wittering to pick up her sisters, which said okay fine and then a few minutes later i got a call from the household to say we may be bringing the body back well we had no idea that was going to happen because there was an op holder which is out for all the royals except there wasn't one for her because she was so young they hadn't worked on it so they actually used the queen mother's one and they said can you put in the on that, it said repatriation would be day four if one of the royal family die overseas. So to bring it back that evening, so we actually had to get the what we call the coffin fit, which is a the floor of the 146 is curved in the hold, but we put a flat floor in, which had ball bearings on it at different places, so that you could put a coffin in and turn it and then lash it down. Right. So... The quickest way of doing it was to change aircraft because it was over the other side of the airfield. So we departed from the north side instead of the VIP terminal on the south side of the Northfield. And uh, literally, they'd finished it in 20 minutes and the passengers arrived. And that was a day where they were glad to see it was someone they knew flying them. I mean, I can remember the press secretary just came on board and I normally was sitting up front. I never went down the back when the passengers got on board. But somehow I thought, no, today I'll go back just to see if there's any last-minute changes for a start. And uh, she came on board, and she'd obviously been crying. We just flung our arms around each other and hugged, and that was the way it went that day. And really it was between the private secretary, myself, and the policeman between us. We were organising what we were going to do We didn't really know when we were coming back. And uh, would you believe, as I was flying over London, going out to Paris from Aberdeen, air traffic said, can you contact North Old Operations? So I did. And they said, when are you going to get back? And I said, well, it's another hour to Paris. You'll probably be on the ground minimum of two hours, hour back, or let's say about seven o'clock. Ten minutes later, they announced to the world's press that the aircraft would return at seven in the evening. Well, two hours before, at five o'clock our time, the coffin arrived at Villa Kublai, and I thought, oh, goodness me, this is much too early for our seven o'clock. But then we saw a priest arrive, some soldiers arrive, so they were going to have a little service before. In the end, we took off about ten minutes early, and we could lose that easily. Except... Every time we spoke to air traffic, it was go direct here, go direct there. And could you pass on our condolences to uh, the prince and so forth? It really was a day to remember. And it was one of those days where we made our plus or minus five seconds. (laughs) I'm glad to report. Wow. But I couldn't relax then because we were taking him back up to Aberdeen to be with the boys after we'd landed at Northolt and the coffin had gone. I could not believe the crowds. I mean, the West End Road that runs along the threshold of the Westerly Runway was absolutely choco. You couldn't have got a vehicle through it. There must have been 12 rows of people. And then, of course, the A40 into London that night. um, There were people all the way along. It was absolutely amazing. What a day. What a week. Well, it was. I went up on the Thursday to sign the Book of Condolence. We got up about 20 to one and queued up and backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards, past the naffy van giving out free tea and so forth. And then at 10 to 9, I got into uh, St James's to sign the Book of Condolence. And just as I was going in, one of the protection officers saw me and he said, you haven't queued up, have you, Graeme? You should have rung up. You could have come any time. And I said, I wouldn't have missed that for the world. You know, it was just lovely. I was very careful not to say too much. But just before we went in, couple of women in front of me turned to my wife Jo and said he knows more than he's letting on (laughs) no idea how they guessed but they did
3: it must have been incredibly emotional for you though because obviously you worked with the princess for many years
0: yes it was and when we got back to Aberdeen on our way up the crew said to me do you think he'll come forward because he sat down the back And I said, no, I doubt it. He'll probably just get out. When we got to Aberdeen, I'm halfway through the shutdown checks when the steward said he's coming forward. And we spoke for between four and five minutes. I won't tell you what we said because I wouldn't do that, but I couldn't even tell my own crew half an hour later. It was just one of those things. I'd landed and gone, it's over. And he came up front And I really, honestly, couldn't tell you. I obviously said, you know, our condolences and so forth, like anyone would. But we apparently were speaking for about four minutes. And then he went down the back and drove off to Aberdeen.
1: Now, you said there were two memorable flights, one being that one and the other one being your last flight. Yes,
0: my last trip in the Royal Air Force was with the Prince of Wales on a five-day tour to the Czech Republic, Slovakia and Switzerland, and then back to RAF Lynham. And when we got back, I was sent down the back to be presented, and he gave me a, a signed photograph of him in RAF uniform, and a beautiful pair of Asprey silver cufflinks with uh, his crest on. Sadly, we had a robbery at home about three years oh. ago, and oh. that, the cufflinks went. I've still got the photograph in a lovely leather frame, and. Uh, that's amazing, but sadly, these things. we now have an alarm, <laughs> uh. as you do.
3: One of my questions is about royal pets, which is quite peculiar, but Angela Kelly in her book talked about the corgis getting on the plane with the late queen. Did you have furry passengers occasionally?
0: We did have furry passengers. Of course, the Prince of Wales had his own Jack Russell early on. I mean, He had a Labrador originally, but a Jack Russell when I flew him, which would wander up. normally to the galley. Probably the worst was one day from Marham up to Aberdeen, Princess Royal got on board with 12 wet Labradors. Now, A, the smell, and B and B, B, the hair. And we had another royal to do that day. So I was flying back down, I think it was to Manchester, to do a royal back to London, and the rest of the crew the crew chief the steward and everybody were down the back with sellotape getting all the hairs <laughs> oh off the no. carpet oh my god and we arrived and they just about finished when we got to manchester but uh, yes the corgis were carried up we particularly on the andover it has open steps and dogs don't like going up when they can see a gap through so we used to put a tarpaulin underneath the steps so that they couldn't see through And they would generally go up, but there were one or two of the Corky's didn't... still didn't like. You'd often see a picture of of either our policeman or the steward carrying a couple of them up.
3: We are talking quite a lot about Balmoral as well. I wonder, did you ever get a chance to visit
0: Balmoral? Funnily enough, no. I was offered the chance and did go once to the Castle of May. And uh, our helicopter crews, of course, they were the ones that got invited in to all the royal destinations... And I know one particular lovely one in the Castle of May. The Queen Mother invited the helicopter crew would flown her in to tea. And they were sitting round, and well, the steward brought in uh, some trays of sandwiches, uh, cucumber sandwiches, with obviously with the crust cut off. And the navigator bent down to pick one up, um, and one of the corgis had his finger.
1: <laughs> what?
0: And the Queen Mum said... Uh, Oh, no, you shouldn't have done that. That is. So they've got a tray for them and a tray for the corgis. Yeah, lovely. Hard to be a
1: corgi in that moment. No, I did. (laughs) um, When you used to fly
0: the Queen Mother up to, and that was, again, my last three trips in the Royal Air Force, the third one from the end was with the Queen Mother bringing her back from Castle of May when she was 100. The next one was Her Majesty and Prince Philip from Birmingham down to London, and finally with the Prince of Wales. So I couldn't have had three better flights to do as my last three. But when we used to go up to the Castle of May, we uh, used to land at Wick, but Her Majesty the Queen Mother always wanted to go and have a look at the Castle of May beforehand. So we used to go up, get a few minutes early, do an orbit around the Castle of May. And when she was 100, it was the day after she was 100. And uh, I asked to do that trip. My last year, they said, what do you want to do? Do you want to do a trip to America? And I said, no, I want to fly the Queen Mum on her 100th birthday, hmm. which was the next day as it happened. But when we went up, the household was standing on the grass outside making a 100.
1: Aww. Absolutely
0: lovely. So you know, sweet. it really was. And then we landed and there was a big crowd to see her land there. It really was lovely.
1: Graham, I think I could talk to you for <laughs> hours. Absolutely.
0: It's fascinating. i <laughs> well, am get into auto-gabble after a while. I know. No, Unfortunately,
1: brilliant. we have
3: to wrap it up. Mm. No, Thank you so
1: much for coming. Pleasure. Thank you so Thank much you so for coming. Much. Really we hope to speak to you again. I'm so sad that chat is over.
2: I mean, that was so, so interesting. I feel like we were talking to him
1: for a long time. We need to welcome him back. We need to create an episode just for him. Absolutely. I
2: just want to talk
3: about 12 Labradors on a flight as well. I mean, that would be...
1: That would be a no-no for me. No-no. <laughs> <laughs> could just, I could just imagine them with a tape like cleaning out all the hairs. You no. could just
2: tell he was a pilot as well, couldn't you? I've no, I, I, felt, yes. I felt very reassured.
1: For, for those, <laughs> who obviously, you can't see us, but he was wearing the most magnificent tie
2: Yes, he was in his
3: RAF tie and he had a little pin badge, a very shiny shoes. Very elegant Still gentleman. looking very much the part yes. of a Royal Pilot.
2: Also, I can't <laughs> believe I didn't know that story about how they uh, nearly um, crashed Actually plane. <laughs> Taxi, no, that's that strong. Yeah, I know that they, they nearly landed in a pond. But speaking of... Royal holidays, once they're actually on the ground. Chatting to Julian Calder, he had some excellent stories about their time in Balmoral and the time he spent there photographing the Queen. Listen up.
1: Now, you were lucky enough to photograph her at different royal residents. How different was she when she was like at Balmoral to Buckingham Palace or Windsor Castle? Or was she just always the same?
4: The thing about Balmoral, it was achieved on holiday. Yeah. And the security is Gone. really arm's length. Yeah. It's there, but you don't see it. And there's not a lot of courtiers there. There's only, you know, maybe one or two people that are officially there. But it's easier to do things in Balmoral.
2: They say she was the happiest in Balmoral. And you took an incredible photo of her back in 2010. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that day.
4: Well, that picture came about because we were doing a book And the book, we're paying for it ourselves. And it was expensive to produce, but big photographic books are. And we thought the only way we're going to pay for this is to get Her Majesty on the cover, if we can. So I'd always wanted to photograph her as Queen of Scots with the Honours Three. And so put a request in for could photograph her when they went up to Edinburgh Week, and she would be there. And the message came back, too busy. Anyway, the Duke of Hamilton in whose care the Honours Three was not well, so we couldn't get them. But at the end of it, said, the Queen would be happy to do it in Barmoral. So we thought, oh, jolly really good. Then it went through all the lists of her titles, of which there are many, and one of the most obscure ones is Chief mm. of the Chiefs. And I thought, oh, that's a good... I can illustrate that. That's a good title. And so that's what we did. We set up there, drove up in pouring rain, next day, a lovely day in Balmoral, and so we did a recce to find a number of places that would work. I went and had a look at the place where Litchfield had photographed her in her early days, but there was no way that an 80-year-old lady was going to get down there in her robes. <laughs> <laughs> so we had to find something that was accessible. And so came across this place called the Gelder, which is a cabin that they use... To have barbecues, and they also—that's where she entertains. Prime ministers go. It's all lit by candlelight, candlesticks that are collected by the Queen. So, oh, it's wow. a very—it's a very nice place. We thought we, we could do it there, but the landscape, when you looked at it, it was nothing. Just a pretty view. It looked nice, but when you're doing a figure in landscape, which is a sort of classic photographic theme, the figure's got to dominate the landscape but the landscape's got to be very sympathetic with putting the figure in there. And it all worked. So when I saw it, the trees on the right-hand side of the picture, the little beck that twists, the, Could do you think, well, the robes match the robes, and the foreground, there was some heather there, but we supplemented it and added some. Anyway, so that was our choice. And we thought, well, the queen can change in the geldo in the cabin, it would be fine. So we went back, having set the lights up and knowing what we were going to do, drove back about 15 minutes back to the castle and there was the Queen standing there ready to go. She said, right, come on, let's do it. So we did, but before that, in the morning, I'd gone to the, about 9 o'clock, had gone to the castle and went to see Angela Kelly, who was sort of running it, and sitting on her lap was the Vladimir Tiara, and mm-hmm. she was taking out huge diamonds and replacing them with the emeralds. Big, wow. big emeralds. You thought, oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> As you do.
0: <laughs> As you do,
1: yeah.
4: And then the phone rang in her, her little office, and she said, "Oh, the Queen wants to see you." I said, "Oh, okay." So I've taken down to the sitting room, and Her Majesty looks at me. And she said, well, "Why should I do this?" And I said, "Ma'am, the inspiration for this picture is actually comes from a, a set of portraits that Rayburn did." Of Scottish clan chiefs. And the the best one is McNabb of McNabb. It's a beautiful painting, but he was a terrible chief, which she laughed. And she said, Right, we'll do this. But make sure that the robes don't get wet. <laughs> so we took it. There. So that with that, with her blessing, we went off and, and did it. And so driving there with two cars, my friend Alistair. Bruce, who's very, very friendly with Her Majesty, was driving and my assistant and we were sitting in the bag and we thought, we've well, got to get there quickly, we must get there. But the Queen's driver was keeping up, so we were bouncing along this road. <laughs> the Queen was in her full attire. And they drove past a family walking along the side of the road. And when they looked and see what was in the Land Rover, oh they were gosh. absolutely aghast to see <laughs> oh her Majesty fully dressed. Much. And Paul said, They think you probably dress like that. Oh said, so anyway, the picture went very well. We did as much as we could do. There were no midges, which was fantastic. The skies were darker than the day before, but we only needed that. I've got a, you know, a whole set of pictures from that, but I just needed one shot. Near the very end of the shoot, I said, Ma'am, the clans are gathering up on that hillside. And she sort of looked up like that, and I just clicked, got the shot. And the essence about being a portrait photographer is you've got to get more than a likeness. You're bound to get a likeness. Everybody with an iPhone gets a likeness. But if you're gonna be a serious portrait photographer, you're looking for that moment where you're gonna get more. It doesn't happen every time. You know, very, very rarely do you think you get to the soul of somebody. Painters probably have it's easier for them because they may have forty hours yeah. to get to something. And a photographer has forty minutes. So, and if you haven't got it in forty minutes, you're probably not going to get it anymore.
1: Did so you he, know you had the shot when you took yeah, that yeah, shot? Yeah, I did. Yeah, you just knew
4: it. Yeah, I just knew. Yeah. I yeah.
2: think we should say to listeners: if you want to check it out, if you Google "Chief of the Chiefs," <laughs> you'll see it, and it is—it's an incredible, it's an incredible it's photo. Incredible photo. It really, really is.
1: Can I just ask: Did you sleep the night before?
2: <laughs> <laughs> um,
4: yeah, I've been doing it a long time, so you you do go to sleep. You're not worried, you're not anxious, but. You're certainly not relaxed. You don't want to be relaxed. You want to be Excited. slightly taut. Yeah. you know. But you do go over everything. Check, 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 check. As I leave the studio on the back of the door, as we leave, it's got check, check and check
3: again. Oh, I might put that up all around my house. <laughs>
4: <laughs> because the thing is, you can have thousands of pounds worth of equipment in your hand. And very often it will all depend on an A3 battery. Yeah. you're not working ah, the triggering doesn't work or something like that so you have to check it and then you're stumped.
1: Were you lucky enough to show the Queen that photo personally?
4: Yes. So what I did it was quite interesting she wanted to see it so I did a big picture of it of that shot but I, she also wanted to see her faces so I've got a set of 36 contact sheets of all the faces from all the shoot and I've got oh, wow. her ticks and no and ticks and no so she did look at everything. But she didn't quite understand why she's standing there in the road. I think in the end, she accepted it, that it was a significant portrait and slightly different from most of the ones
1: that she'd had done.
3: It really is special. And I think, you know, what you were saying about the landscape, evoking that yeah. chief of chiefs.
1: Now, that photo is completely different to another one that you took of the Queen inside Balmoral. What was the Queen like when she was Inside. So
4: that that picture came about because I wanted to do my own portrait for the Diamond Jubilee. There was a picture of her father working at that desk. And I'd, I'd been in that room several times, so I said, could I take a photograph of you working at a desk similar to the one of your father? And she said, yes, of course. And the dispatch box was placed there and everything was put in. But I photographed her in the morning... But I said, could I photograph, come back and photograph the room at the end of the day, at like four or five o'clock, which I did. So it's actually a two, composite. It's a two-bit picture, yeah. Oh so, wow! So, but I wanted to photograph her in the to suggest it was the evening of yeah. her rain, and that she was on holiday, but she works, yes, works every yes. morning, looking at the dispatch boxes, just as her father did.
1: I love it. We're actually looking at the photo now. I yeah. hadn't realised.
4: So you can see the lights on either side; it's taking taking sort of control.
1: Do you think she felt more at
2: home with a photo like that, in contrast to the the chief of the Uh, chiefs?
4: Yeah, probably, but I don't think she would ever admit it. She'd been photographed (laughs) so many times. I mean, she'd been photographed for every major photographer in the world, and Mm -hmm. uh, um, ever been, you know, however long she started being photographed when she was, you know, three or four, you know, tiny. Not all of them, whether it's her or any of them. What you mustn't do is faff around. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, nobody, and nobody likes that. You've you, you got to be in control. So after I've, um, the, the one in the palace, the first one where she's read, in order that I felt comfortable, I used to say, good morning, Your Majesty. Ma'am, may I take command now? Or take control? And she'd always say, of course. And I felt Comfortable just being able to do this and doing that. I mean, I've had to talk to her as a photographer, mm. you know, not interested if whether it was Julian Calder or not, but I was there as a photographer and it, and it made me feel happier just being good manners, really.
2: Absolutely. Were you ever particularly surprised by anything about the Queen whilst you were in her presence?
4: No, but she wanted to talk to you. Mm. So, having knowing that, you had to. Do a bit of homework and say, <laughs> for instance, if one time in Barmore, I think it'd been a pretty harsh winter, I'd asked her how the deer had done. And she was a, a, essentially a chatelaine. She took obviously great interest in the estates and she was more than happy to talk about the animals. Well, you know, anything with four legs and she was, <laughs> yeah. you, know, you could talk. Did you ever have to read
3: up on the racing or the, the horses? No, I like racing anyway. Oh, that's <laughs> of so, oh, so, a lot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I knew about that, I guess. Never ran out of things to talk about. No, no.
4: Yeah. We, we, we did talk about some, whether it was flat or steeplechase, because her, her mother was a great steeplechase. Mm. I think her mother preferred steeplechase. Whereas... The Queen was not so much interested in racing; she was interested in the breeding.
3: Yes, I had a question. Just going back to the Chief of Chiefs shoot, we serialized Angela Kelly's book actually in Hello, and there's some interesting stuff yeah, in there yeah, about yeah. the preparations involved. But how close did you get to getting the gowns wet? The robes? Oh,
4: they weren't. They they weren't going to get wet. There's a sheet underneath her. Right. Yeah, there is a sheet under there, and you can't see it, but. Uh, it is there.
2: You know, I was thinking that the whole time you were telling us about it, because I was like, the pressure. of you got one job to not let the robes get wet? And there you are in the middle of Scotland after a
4: very yeah, rainy don't, day. don't forget, it's, it's the grass. It's springy. It's not like a croquet lawn.
1: But Good surely point. she was Good worried point. that it was just going to be heavier for her, not that she was going to have to clean up the mess herself. <laughs> if they got surely wet. Did, she didn't want to damage the robes, surely. No, no, no but no. surely they wouldn't get damaged with water. It was more like the fact that they would become heavier. Or no, I don't think
4: there was never, it was not going to rain. There's never a chance of yeah. like that. And she's wearing walking shoes underneath her.
3: Yeah, yeah.
2: Oh, that's a funny thought. She's got <laughs> yeah, 100 yeah. wellies on under, yeah, yeah, yeah. under, <laughs> all, under all the robes. Yeah, yeah. That's,
3: yeah never, that never occurred. No, no never occurred no. to me either. No white satin shoes for that kind of No, 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 God, no, She's not far from the
4: road anyway, maybe, I don't know, length of this room. So, mm-hmm. so you know, spent her whole life trampling over there. She's not going to... you know few yards not going to make a difference
2: was she wearing wellington boots or were they like hiking boots or? no
4: she two wearing uh, walking shoes walking mm-hmm. shoes walking, yeah yeah yeah, yeah. You know, stout shoes stout shoes
1: yeah. never thought about that before yeah. that's so interesting yeah. Yeah. I'm never going to look at the picture the same way <laughs> <laughs> never <laughs> so that's everything from us today thank you so much to all of our guests and to you two for joining us We'll be back to talk all things Royal Education, so don't forget to subscribe now.
2: In the meantime, catch more from Hello with our news and entertainment show, The Daily Lowdown, available on Spotify, Apple and wherever you get your podcasts. Bye!